the moment you as a data person know that you're starting to win is when you start to see individual product teams naturally start to build data into a first-class system. Hire data people who are really good product people because you're going to need those product chops to be able to prioritize properly. Data teams really, really need to establish experimentation because it builds this intimate connection between product teams and metrics. Welcome to The Right Track, a podcast for people building data cultures. We will hear from leaders in engineering, product, and data as they share their frustrating and inspiring stories on building the best products for their customers by mastering outcome-driven development, self-serve analytics, and great data cultures. I am Stefania Olafsdottir, CEO and co-founder of AVO, the analytics governance platform, changing how developers, product managers, and data scientists collaborate to plan, track, and govern their product analytics. Keep the conversation going with us in the Right Track community. Join us on therighttrack.avo.app. In this episode, I spoke with Jay Sharma. Jay was one of the first data scientists on the Airbnb data team, where he worked on anything that needed to get done to scale their data culture, including production, machine learning, analytics infrastructure, actual analytics, and data tools. A special shout out to the infamous Airbnb knowledge repo, which Jay built and open sourced. He was also the second data scientist at Webflow. So he's really seen the creation and rise of successful data teams. He's now the founder and CEO of Apo, a very exciting platform for teams to run better experiments faster, even when you aren't the Airbnb data team. When I was head of data science at QuizUp, the Airbnb data block was a huge source of validation and inspiration for me personally. So it is a great pleasure to have Che on the right track to talk about his experience building data cultures. We discussed the purpose of the data team, who should own the North Star metric at your organization, what defines a good North Star metric, and how you can leverage good metrics to really empower teams to be proactive, to think outside the box and generally make quality decisions. We also talked about how vastly unappreciated the data lifecycle is and the amount of investment that's needed to get good data outcomes and how having a cross-functional adoption in your data culture will positively impact both your upstream and downstream data quality, reliability, and infrastructure. Because the more people are interested in leveraging data, the more people care about data quality in the entire data lifecycle. Anywhere from reliable event instrumentation to well-maintained documentation about which revenue dashboards you should trust. So what is the first thing you should do when starting a data team? What's the first thing you should do as the first data leader of an organization? Listen in for Che's strategic and tactical advice on starting and scaling a data team, including your friendly neighborhood reminder that the point of a data team is not to build a data warehouse or a dashboard. The point of a data team is to improve decision quality at your organization. Hello, Che, and welcome to The Right 
track. Great to have you here. It's great to be here. Thanks, Steph. Super exciting. Um, could you tell us a little bit who you are, what you do, and how you got there? Sure thing. We'll cover the whole story. So my name is Che. I'm the founder and CEO of Epo. We're a next-generation A-B experimentation platform, one that's really focused on analytics and one that really aims to unlock your culture of entrepreneurial energy. Previously, my background was in data science. I was an early data scientist at Airbnb. I was the fourth one, joined in 2012, uh, back before we had most of the infrastructure and capabilities that you see out of that team. Uh, and kind of saw a lot of the growth journey from in working on things like production machine learning, analytics infrastructure, actual analytics, and uh, data tools. I also built and open sourced this thing called the Knowledge Repo, which was like a collaborative notebook platform uh, for doing strategic analyses. And kind of after that, worked at some kind of more growth stage companies, uh, most recently Webflow, as the second data scientist before starting EPA. Huge. Thank you so much for sharing this. So for anyone listening, I am sure many of you have followed the Airbnb blog um, for data science online. That was at least a Bible for myself when I was head of data science at QuizUp. Che and I have previously talked about like this feeling when you are feeling a little bit alone <laughs> as a data scientist. Um, you don't know what you're doing. Um, and it was just such a huge validation that what we were doing at QuizUp we weren't just the only people doing it. Um, mm -hmm. I so often enjoyed a blog post from the data science team at Airbnb where you were sharing something that you were currently doing. And I was like, oh my God, that's exactly what we're doing. That's great. Right. If they're doing yeah. it, it must be good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's a really common experience. I remember when I was at Airbnb, we would talk to data teams from, I remember at Square, they had a really good fraud detection machine learning uh, team that we were talking to, um, looked up to Facebook and LinkedIn, some of these places that have much further along the journey. And yeah, it was a real kind of cathartic moment once we started pushing out stuff that these places didn't have and that, you know, acknowledged problems that were being long ignored. So yeah, very common, you know, when you look at people who are closer to the end of the book than the beginning and you can hopefully learn from that. Exactly. So important. One of the things that you like that really that I was that was really inspiring for me was the knowledge repo. So thank you for taking the time for open sourcing that. That was a great contribution. Yeah, definitely. And that was exactly an example of something where, you know, we kept facing this problem uh, of like people having to repeat the same thing over and over, of not being able to broadcast results effectively, all, you know, the shareability gap, all that. And You know, as we started working out our own little hacky solutions for it, and, you know, the early stages were very, very hacky, it was just interesting to notice that all these companies that we looked up to also didn't have great solutions for it. So, you know, the world of data, it's always changing. It's always new problems to solve. Yeah. Awesome. I will touch on so many different parts of your uh, really quick intro later, hopefully, in the episode. But to kick us off into, you know, the world of data um, and prove we are humans um, that have dealt with terrible things and great things in data. I would love for you to kick us off with uh, a data story, an inspiring one and a frustrating one. Absolutely. I definitely have my, my set of frustrating and inspiring ones. I would say the most frustrating data stories to me were 
one of them was around getting the very, very basic analytics and instrumentation. And I think this is something that obviously you and Ava will think a lot around. But one of the things about being in data is you're keenly aware that some data is more valuable than other data. Like there are some data sources that actually tell you the story of the business in its really core way. Um, for example, if you're Airbnb, like the data of when a booking gets confirmed is very important. It underlies a lot of things you do. You, and then also there are some things like whenever you look at a listing, that's also an important piece of data. And so I think a really frustrating thing is when the org doesn't treat that data as seriously as you. And so that means do they gather it? Do they make sure it's resilient and that it's always going to survive? And so, you know, Airbnb, we ended up actually building a system that I think has a lot in common with what you're building Avo just because this problem was, was so big. And I worked at other growth stage companies where there was, they're early on in their journey. They didn't have a stood up set of infra and processes to gather this data properly. And yeah, it's just very frustrating when you have to essentially wage a political campaign to get basic data tracked. Yeah. And you're touching a lot on data culture here, which is my favorite thing to talk about. So we'll dive definitely a lot into that in this episode. But a uh, fun fact also on that, you know, that you had to solve this at Airbnb. That was one of the things that we did before we were starting Avo was like talk to hundreds of people about this problem. And it it was really only like the the hugely successful organizations that had had time to build something like this. And when Avo went through Y Combinator, it was... You know, a, a, a big part of that was that Gustav Alströmer, uh -huh. a fantastic Swedish person living in San Francisco for... I know Gustav very well. Yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. um, exactly, right? You probably worked closely with him. Shout out to Gustav. Yeah, that's right. Gustav's the man. Love the guy. He is the man, yeah. And he, I remember when we did the Y Combinator interview, <laughs> uh, I should do a video that represents like that experience that was hilarious we ran in there and we were you only have a like a few minutes and we were trying to tell you know a story around what we were trying to solve and Gustav's first spoken sentence in the interview just like a few seconds in he was like I've had that problem <laughs> yeah it was so good yeah yeah in, in terms of kind of you know, the inspiring side of the coin I think the, the moment you as a data person know that you're starting to win is when you start to see individual product teams naturally start to build data into a first-class citizen, metrics as a first-class citizen. And so, you know, for me at Airbnb, a really cathartic moment was we had, we had this one team that was starting to run experiments. It was the search ranking team. And, you know, they made progress here and there and they started building up the infrastructure along the way. Then they started showing a lot more, wins and that kind of spread to their immediate adjacent teams, the, the search marketplace team. And they started launching at like a lot of things that now we sort of take for granted, like the, you know, removing hosts that always say no to bookings or creating uh, messaging that says like, this is the rare find and that's actually good to, to book it now. Um, a lot of marketplace friction things. And in the end, we actually were able to re-accelerate Airbnb's growth. So, so many companies on Airbnb's pace, they, they, they are growing like rocket ships, but at a steadily decreasing pace. So they start out 3x, 3x, 2.8x, 2.5x, something like that. We actually re-accelerated that growth. And this one team basically proved that it was because of their experiment-centric strategy. And the really inspiring thing then is that if you look at how that team operated, everything they do in terms of how they prioritize, in terms of how they justify, was so data-centric. 
where suddenly like whenever you're talking around a product idea, you'd say like, you know, we can do some basic heuristics and understand how many bookings we'd get. And so that's suddenly data is no longer this kind of like lagging, chasing function to try to get people into a metric worldview. It's been just built into the core DNA of the team. And then to see that show up so viscerally in our overall metrics was, you know, very, very cool. Yeah, that's awesome. And I mean, you've talked both about like, you know, the frustrating part having been getting the right data in place um, and then a little bit on establishing an experimentation culture. I guess um, this is a little bit related to that. Like the, the inspiring story was when you finally got to that stage, right? Yeah, exactly. It's, there's really a moment when experimentation becomes a core workflow that just unlocks all of the culture data teams strive for. So you know, something I always say, and you know, it's obviously very correlated with my career decisions is that data teams really, really need to establish experimentation because it builds this intimate connection between product teams and metrics where like, if you think of all these data teams that are not running experiments, all they have is like a product team has to look at the overall number of bookings, the overall number amount of revenue, maybe a few user segmentations, but they don't really know how much they contributed. Like they don't actually know if they actually improved anything and experiments build that connection. And there's a lot of product teams that really embrace that, that really, you know, they, they don't want to waste time. Like they don't want to waste all these resources on something that might not actually be a good direction. Mm -hmm. And so given an ability to validate their own decision-making and then doubt, you know, build the right things afterwards, they really embrace that. And so as, as a data team, I always say, the core mission of what we're trying to do is improve everyone's decision-making. And the best way to do that is actually with experimentation because then you can actually evaluate whether good decisions or bad decisions are happening. Yeah. And obviously quality data is a really important input into that sort of decision-making. Yeah. And you know, one of the things I think is fascinating here is that the way I think that a company starts to invest in their underlying data foundation is they first have to feel the value of it on the other end. Mm -hmm. And so that, that can happen with really top line things like revenue. And you often see these companies get a hold of that sort of metric earlier on. But, you know, if, for example, if you want logging instrumentation to be a big deal, then you need more teams using that data to actually use it in their daily process. So I always think that like, Certain projects like experimentation, like machine learning, any sort of data product, like their benefit isn't just the literal thing they're doing. It's all the upstream data quality improvements that come immediately after, where like just by building these kind of interfaces, these workflows right in front of people, they can say like, oh, I would really love to have better data underneath it. And so I'm going to start investing. Oh my God, I could not agree more, Jay. Yeah. I know we're really aligned on this, so I hope it won't be too much yeah. us preaching to the choir a little bit <laughs> this entire session. But yeah, I mean, so yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with this. And I think you have also talked a little bit about that. I mean, you've released some great content on sort of how people should think about metrics and your sort of thoughts on how some of the metrics Airbnb chose were high level enough, but specific enough that 
it helped various different teams at Airbnb from the growth team to the product teams to the marketing teams make really good, impactful, long-term decisions for Airbnb. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, definitely. You know, I think Airbnb, we, we, we had certain advantages uh, as a business model. And I think most marketplaces end up with this advantage for a data team, which is you have this metric, which is purchases or bookings, what marketplace clearances writ large that are just really great North Star metrics. Because when you have like, you know, a transaction happens, you can kind of know that the marketplace did what it's supposed to do. Um, you know, you need to have some downstream checks on the quality of that transaction, like review scores, whatever Airbnb. But, you know, by and large, you, you have these great North Star metrics. And for a lot of other companies, like if you're a SaaS business or s- some other type of business, like you don't have that, that sort of clarity on North Stars necessarily. You might have something like MRR, Something that links in monetization, but you don't have that same like, man, if our users did a lot of this, we would all know they're getting value of our product. Right. And so I actually think this is one of the important things data teams have to invest in. That's actually why I think you should start a data team is to help you arrive at those answers. So for example, a Webflow, you know, Webflow is not a marketplace. It's a SaaS business to help you build a website from scratch with this kind of powerful no-code editor. We often measure things with ARR and MRR, but there's a lot of people using the free product who are getting value and it's good for us to increase value of the system. We eventually found these metrics that you know worked really well. One of them was how often are people publishing and getting uh, views on their website? You know, this, this takes a perhaps opinionated, but I think generally acceptable view that websites exist for people to view them. And so once people has, have actually shared it out, then you know that it's a good website. They thought it was worth sharing. So these are the sort of metrics that once you kind of have something that is just both connected to business outcomes and also viscerally shows customer value, you can do so much better data work, mm-hmm. right? You can talk about the behaviors that predict it. You can talk about experiments that boost it. You know, you can understanding user segmentations that more naturally get there. Like there's just such a more harmonious thing that happens. Yeah. But yeah, a good first place to start is to say like, what are the metrics that we care about? And I think kind of once you do that, there's kind of, you know, as you can tell, I, I often flip between the organizational problems and technological problems. Like once you actually nail down these metrics, then all these other kind of modern data stack choices that are happening where those metrics are probably going to be modeled in BigQuery or Snowflake because, or, or Redshift because these data warehouses are the natural place to combine different data sources. So suppose you have Stripe data and you're trying to combine it with your internal user tables and maybe some clicks. Like there's only one place you can do that and that's in these data warehouses and that kind of increases the desire for workflows that put Snowflake or whatever at the center of the world. Absolutely. And like this, you know, the discussion of the metrics layer really fits in here. But I want to also just because you've brought up really great examples of metrics, and I think this is an interesting uh, subject matter for um, this audience. So you mentioned nights booked for Airbnb, and then you mentioned pages published, right, for Webflow, where you were, I don't remember if you mentioned it in your intro this time, but you were there as well, Webflow. So you have vast experience with some really fantastic data teams there, and Webflow is one of them. 
which is interesting because so DoorDash would we consider that a marketplace? Yes, probably. Mm-hmm. And they have transaction metrics. Um, which sound similar to the nights booked. I think um, at some point, at least I stumbled upon something and hopefully someone from DoorDash can confirm this or reject it. So they have uh, something like weekly or daily deliveries without issues, right? Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. they have deliveries and then they have measurements on whether there were any issues like delays in the delivery or something missing from the order or something like that or complain about the deliverer. And then they have input metrics into all of these that are, you know, very top of funnel oriented, but also sort of, you know, number of issues surfaced and things like that that are aimed to optimize this. So I think that type of metric and then also with the Webflow metric of weekly published pages or sites and then having some sort of a qualitative indicator for whether it was a valuable publish is a really good strategy for designing metrics like these. Yeah, completely. I mean, the DoorDash example is actually interesting for a few reasons. One is that they actually are a three-party stakeholder exchange right? where you got the restaurant, the orderer, and the driver. Right. And one of the things, you know, I, I the, the night's book thing is like a nice easy metric for Airbnb. Like, it can take some effort to come up with how do these metrics, uh, how do you interweave them? So for example, at DoorDash, you'd have these situations where orders goes up and revenue goes down or something like that. Mm-hmm. Like you have to figure out what, what are you going to do with that? Like what happens if a product increases orders and decreases revenue? Again, I think this is actually what data teams exist to do is like craft the metric space, figure out the stuff that matters and help guide trade-offs between them. Like this is, Tough work that also ties to the business model. Mm-hmm. Where I think uh, data teams are kind of losing a lot of productivity is once you've kind of defined a lot of these metrics and your stance on them, rebuilding the same downstream workflows and analysis tools that exist in every single company. For example, I don't think many people say you should build a BI tool at every company. And so people get Tableau and Looker or whatever, but you still see that type of thinking applied to a lot of other spaces. And so I think that's probably something that I'll change. Yeah, this is actually a good segue into um, that. I know we yeah. want, I, I want to talk a little bit more about the metrics culture, just in general with data culture, because what I think is interesting is this discussion of like who owns the metrics. Um, and I think that touches a lot on like basically org structure. So we'll leave that for later. Yeah. But this was a really great segue into how the industry has changed. And I think you have a fun take on that. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think a big part of this is just what I've observed from my time, right? So when I was at Airbnb, we were very much a build over buy culture. Like, it's hard for me to argue whether that's actually a good decision or not. You know, it led to things like we, you know, created Airflow, created the knowledge repo. Like, we built our own experimentation infrastructure. It was great for people like me to learn how to build these things. But, you know, it's also kind of questionable now where suddenly there's been this explosion of data tools. And I think if you are the leader of a data team, this question is just a lot more nuanced. It's like, what do you build? What do you buy? It's a more nuanced today than it was then, you mean? Oh, dramatically more so. I mean, there was no Snowflake when we started, right? And so we had to home roll our own data infra. You know, it started out with, like a pig cluster and then we did consolidated on hive we were running things through cron jobs and now we have airflow whatever but nowadays like i think it's 
difficult to justify building your own data infrastructure when you have great products like Snowflake and BigQuery, et cetera. So that's already one example of it. But even in, besides that, like think of all the pipes you used to have to build to get your transactional data into your data lake. Uh, now you can just get Fivetran or Rudderstack or whatever. We had to build our own logging infrastructure and now there's segments and so on and so forth, like the reverse ETL tools for all the Salesforce pipes. So now like there are options to buy really good products for a lot of these things. And I think you start to see these data teams start to have larger portfolios of data products, which is great because I think that's actually, a, you know, a productive behavior. And then it kind of also just brings to mind, like, what are the things that they are rebuilding every time? There are some things like, you know, providing business tables for all the metrics. Like what is an Airbnb booking? What is revenue? And I don't think that stuff is really going to be able to be outsourced because it's all a result of bespoke decisions made by engineering teams. But stuff like experimentation, it's like, no, it actually is the same at every place. And you know, it appears very starts becoming increasingly questionable why you have to hire these experiment infra builders at every single company to have the culture you want. Yeah. It's basically always a question of perceived impact versus perceived effort of adopting a solution like this and what it will give you. Because it's like mm -hmm. you have some estimate of what you might be able to build yourself and what that could accomplish for you. Obviously, you'll probably always have to multiply that with at least P, uh, pi yeah. is how you say it in English. P is how you say it in Icelandic. But, you know, at least you have some sort of a, a, an idea of what you will get out of building yourself. And I think this is probably one of the biggest impacts typically into a builder by decision. It's the perceived effort and perceived impact of a solution that can be a little bit more vague than your understanding of what you can build. Yeah, completely. And there's lock-in costs and stuff like that. I, I think one of the things that, you know, I'm curious if you've also seen is like as a fellow data tools founder, It's always, you can always feel good that the people who have actually built them before are usually the ones who are most readily wanting to buy. Right. Like, <laughs> once you've actually gone through the process of building it, you're like, oh man, this is a lot more complicated and I never actually get my head count back. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, one of uh, like most of Avo's first customers were the people that we had worked together with at QuizUp that were just like, they cried almost when we told them we were building this again. Right. Yeah, completely. So yeah, I'm glad that we as, you know, completely unbiased data tool entrepreneurs could <laughs> together and say everyone should buy our stuff. But, you know, getting, getting back to the, the metrics conversation, I think that one of the things that I'm starting to see happen, I'm curious if you see it as well, is that like when I was at Airbnb, we had a data science team and they really owned a lot of the thinking of, you know, what were the metrics that mattered? How do you drive them? What are the inputs to them? Because data was such a foreign thing, it really took someone to, who was native in that world to actually drive these conversations. But one of the things I'm noticing now is that the product world is just getting so much smarter, mm -hmm. where suddenly you have things like Reforge or you know, Lenny's newsletter, these, these things that kind of can help you arrive at really good practices that teach you the language of data, where like some of the classes they have are like, you know, most businesses can be understood by like activation, engagement, retention, et cetera. We can't tell you what metrics are for your business for those things, but you should think about those and come up with them. And that's so much what, you know, the science of the data science team was, was saying like, you know, here are the core ways of measuring the business and now we're going to try a lot of stuff out. So I, I think that 
this kind of metrics conversation and kind of how do you go about moving them is like starting to become much more of a collaboration with data and product in a way that I think is very, very cool. Yeah. And because you asked what, um, and, and said you were curious about what my perception of this was, um, I definitely agree. And this is also just a part of my philosophy. And you sort of touched on it a little bit in, I think, your whether it was one of the frustrating stories or the or the inspiring stories, just as having managed a data science team before there was any interest or like passion from the team about using data and then going and changing that culture into like people being curious about data and wanting to use data and just like gradually build these internal case studies and like basically internal marketing of, findings um, to create curiosity and like, oh, okay, so I might be able to do that as well. And just generally, you know, making good decisions, using data, it inspires people, more people to want to do it. And one of the most impactful things that we did for the data culture at QuizUp was to make this metrics design a very collaborative process. Mm -hmm. And it's what's interesting is, it's a skill that you grow um, designing metrics and data structures that fulfill those metrics is a skill that you grow and it really like experience is a really fundamental piece in it. And so first, like the data team was always just designing the metrics very commonly after the fact also, like, you know, something would get released and a question would be thrown into our lap and be like, how did it go? And you'd be like, I'm sorry, did anyone track anything? I, yeah. You know, what? how did what go, you know? Yeah. And trying to sort of understand that question and the answer to it after the fact to really shifting the mindset into like, before we release something, we want to make sure it is to drive a specific impact. What impact should that be? And it was such an incredible journey to watch more and more people within the organization be passionate about pulling in the data team as advisors into that process. Like I'm, th- I'm about to release this thing and I have an idea that I think I want to measure this thing. Um, does that make sense? Hello, data team. Can you answer this? Yeah. Um, and then just seeing the personal growth that everyone, like from product engineers, just iOS developers, Android developers, backend developers, to product designers, to product managers, grow from thinking about like, yeah, I guess like we want to measure daily active users or we want to measure signups to having something in thought, like in, insightful that would actually provide value. And then even taking it a step further into when they had then seen those metrics realize with specific event structures that they needed, they even gained insights into what is important in data structures and what do I actually literally need to track to be able to answer this question and it really up-leveled the data quality because having a product engineer that cares about that is going to be fundamental for the quality of the analytics events that you track. So I really think this is like a really important flywheel. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the reason why I wanted to bring the metrics conversation up again is like the org structure discussion and the ownership discussion. And I think we're seeing more and more of like product teams owning this a little bit more and more and more. But it's interesting that the sort of data team still really serves as a really important sort of advisor ongoing, even in the most mature organizations. Yeah, completely. I mean, one of the things I always think is interesting to observe is when you look at team product teams in general, like how often are they 
twisting their organization to match their tools instead of having tools that fit their organization. And th this kind of can happen with data teams operating like a service model where it's like, oh, it turns out the only people who can use the tools are the ones who deeply understand SQL, know where all the tables are on the warehouse, and can vet things upstream enough to know that the data is valid. Well, yeah, in that world of, you know, kind of poor infra, poor tooling, then yeah, every, all, anything involving data in metrics has to go through the data team. And that's a tough thing because then suddenly you've got to hire a lot of people. Like it's, it's you're, you're kind of uh, saving on infra tools, but you're, you're instead making up for bandwidth. And then if you look at places like Airbnb, Facebook, et cetera, what you find is that data and metrics and experimentation are like water, right? It's just very easy to just build them into your process, to ask quick questions, ask deep questions. And that changes the game where suddenly like data teams become one of enablement where like they understand that analytical people exist everywhere and now them no SQL. Um, and so you have to let them use their analytical brains with tools that are native to their use cases. Yeah. And it's become more and more a part of the job description for a product manager also to be able to sort of understand these insights as well. And it's incredibly paralyzing for them if they are completely dependent on like waiting for the inbox of the data team to clear up before they can answer a question. Yeah, completely. I mean, I think one of the, especially in the experimentation world, like one of the things that happens a lot is you run this experiment and it doesn't show you what you were hoping to see. Experimentation in general has like it has something like a thirty percent rate of moving metrics positively. Uh, so whenever something doesn't happen the way you expect, product teams have a lot of questions. You know why did it not work? Did it work for some people? Did it not? And it's actually very logical to do so. I mean, I remember at Airbnb we'd run these experiments that you would think would be really good, but they would look negative. But if you scrutinize them, you realize they're positive everywhere except for Internet Explorer or something like that. Or they were positive everywhere except for East Asia because we were messing up some time zone issue or something like that. At Webflow, we would, our early experiments, they would be generally okay, but we would just have failed to design for like teams or some particular use case, like, you know, collaboration context. So you kind of need to introspect experiments in this deeper way to understand how you can do better. But the problem is if all those workflows are gated by data resources, then you're basically different parts of the building are not going to get all the answers they want. And that could be the experiments, that could be the finance team, the marketing team, whatever. And then they just are kind of put adrift and have to, you know, figure out some proxies or something like that. Yeah. And so I think we've established that we agree that is it's a game changer for an organization when there's collaboration on these fronts between these different stakeholders. Let's use that opportunity to segue a little bit into org structures. Yeah. I know that sort of Apo is still early, but you have a lot of experience with building data cultures, both at Airbnb and Webflow and, and other locations as well. Yeah. And so can you talk a little bit about org structures data-wise? How does the data team work with product and engineering? Are they integrated with your product teams? Are they a separate team? Who owns what? And th those things. Yeah, completely. So I, I have a lot of opinions about this. Now having kind of seen and dealt with a lot of different data companies, I think one of the things that actually ends up having a lot of impact is do you bring all the data functions under one org? And 
what, what are all the data functions? It's the, the functions that are the full lifecycle. So starting from instrumentation, all the pipes, all the transformations, and all the serving. And then on top of that are all the machine learning purposes as well. So each one of those teams can only, like they exist in a world that's like completely data centric and they are serving other stakeholders in reliance on other upstream people working on data. I see a lot of teams that will take like the data engineering, data infra side and report that through engineering. They'll have the data analytics, data science side report through marketing a product or something. The machine learning team might even be their own pod in some way. And these teams are just much slower, I think, to get all the pieces working in harmony for reasons that are probably pretty obvious. You know, like the data infra people start just doing more broad engineering infra tasks instead of focusing on the data side. The analysts just have a let, let we, let's make do with what we got sort of attitude towards things because they don't have the agency to change things upstream. It just leads to a general kind of balkanization that I think prevents you from doing like really innovative things. So, uh, you know, if, if a company is kind of just getting started, I really think that it would behoove them to bring data engineering, data infra, uh, analytics engineering, data science, analytics, and ML under one roof. Now, you can house that roof in engineering, you can put it in product, you can, you know, put it in a bunch of places. But I, I think that being able to combine them has a lot of long-term benefits. Yeah, this is really interesting. Um, and I think this is generally the trend that we're seeing in the industry. And I literally think it's not only the trend that we're seeing in the industry, it's also a journey that I think most companies go through. And I, this is what we did at QuizUp. And I've interviewed a bunch of people both on the right track and also just like um, in the founding journey and consulting with our customers. It goes from a single data person. That's the first thing, you know, and then that team grows and it's a, it's a bunch of people. Sometimes they get hired under different parts of the organization, but oftentimes they start as like a, a single, single team. Maybe like, you know, there's a one data person that hires a few other data people and then they get maybe split up into different organizations or if different parts of the organization. So you go from a centralized into a completely decentralized because you realize like, okay, this person needs to work with the product team. This person needs to work with this other product team or the marketing team. So let's put them there. And then, and this is literally my experience. Most companies learn that they need to do that at some point, you know, decentralize, and then they go back to centralizing because they learn that the individuals and the sort of different functions aren't empowered enough to do the big stone work in, you know, the plumbing and the infrastructure and sort of collaborate and knowledge share without being centralized. And in some cases, they are able to go directly into like a centralized um, hybrid model where you have people focusing on different areas of the organization because specializing matters a lot. You know, you need to understand the financial terms or the product terms or the marketing terms or things like that. Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. you have a centralized hub that can sort of work together and collaborate. Yeah, I, that's, that's generally the philosophy I agree with as well. It's like have a centralized team in terms of reporting structures and careers and enablement and then have a kind of very high touch white glove support model where like data people live on these other teams day to day, right? That they're really like at that PM's right hip pocket, like really figuring out how can they drive outcomes in those places. You know, one of the things I thought was like, 
this kind of secret superpower of the Airbnb data team is we were so focused on impact and it was like broadly defined and we purposely like didn't even define it. It was just like, what is impact? Well, it's, it's sort of like, you know, it when you see it sort of thing. And it was interesting because like when we look through all the successful initiatives at Airbnb, we could say like, what were data investments that led to like really impactful product launches? Like things where like this product would not be what it is today without data. I mean, we had some of these things. For instance, we saw that this one analyst looked through the mismatch of people's desired prices and the prices on the market seasonally and proved to the org that just like everyone else in the hospitality industry, like hosts need to change their price over time. Like they need to charge more in the summer and charge less in the fall or whatever, right? Like stuff like that. And basically got a whole product champions around pricing recommendations. And so that's one of those, you know, when you see it things, because now there's a whole wing of the org that has realized that this problem exists and is doing stuff about it. Other examples are, you know, again, data shows that there are all these hosts who chronically reject people and they're just dragging down the marketplace. Like they haven't accepted someone in months, but their house is still somehow popular enough to keep getting people asking. And so start off analysis like that. And then it leads to a product proposal to kind of demote and eventually take these people off the platform. And again, one of the most successful product launches, you know, it's not enough to show a powerful analysis, like to show some result, you actually have to use the rest of your holistic communication skills to lead to follow-up actions. And that kind of relentless kind of entrepreneurial impact oriented culture of the Airbnb data team, I think led to a lot of our success. Yeah, there are, uh, you know, there are great triggers in what you just said that I want to talk about. But I want to just mention that, like, this pricing recommendation team, that is a really inspirational data story, I think. And so I would love to follow up a follow-up question. Do you remember or know anything about, like, how did that come about? Like, why was that person looking into that? Yeah, so it's this guy named Bar Ifrak, who's a brilliant guy, really brilliant guy. I think he's at uh, an Uber freight right now. But the, the way it came up is that when you hire really product-minded data people, so people who actually understand what, what is this product doing? You know, what is Airbnb doing? It's, it has this pool of listings with hosts who are looking to make a little extra money or have kind of various motivations. And you have guests who want to find appropriate listings. And the, you, you can think of the whole thing as like a big marketplace friction problem. And so he, I think he really saw that in a way that even maybe a lot of our product people did not. And he was background in economics and marketplaces. So it's sort of natural. And if you start out with this very product sense of things, then like you can kind of lay out a bunch of hypotheses for what would be most impactful. You know, you can say things like pricing or host acceptance rates or, you know, supply gaps or whatever, and just kind of go down that list of hypotheses and see like, is there a there there for each one? And so for, in case of Barr, you know, he had a bunch of early successes that got him an ability to say, I want to spend a month or two or whatever, like digging into this problem. And then he really dug into it <laughs> and kind of built the case. So that's a really good story. Yeah. I think the, the, the thing you can tease out of that is, Hire data people, especially early on, in the early in the culture, hire data people who are really good product people, because you're going to need those product chops to be able to prioritize properly and then actually lead to outcomes you want. Yeah. 
I remember when I was recruiting for the data team at QuizUp and um, people were a little bit surprised that like there are so many people that like have some background in data or BI or something. And like I got some, you know, surprises or like people were surprised internally in the organization, you know, that that we weren't just filling the candidate funnel with like really relevant people. Uh, all the time. But, you know, one of the things I think I learned and what I've since recommended for people when they're coming to me for advice on like who is available as a data scientist for my team or like who should I recruit or how should I position the position. And I think like that, you really nailed the, uh, like hit the nail on the head there with the entrepreneurial spirit. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I've really recommended like one of the most important Things which is so hard to identify though sometimes in a recruiting process is that sort of founder mindset, like really hunt down alternative ways, not just answer questions, but really like find ways to look at the data in an alternative way and be proactive. So just plus one on that. And then another point about like this, I mean, this person got a buy-in for spending a month on this research question. And that's something that most people aren't able to get buy-in for, yeah. right? And there are multiple challenges in that. And I remember recently a tweet by TJ, um, who's a great Twitter account to follow. I'm currently talking about the handle T-E-E-J underscore M. Anyway, so he tweeted recently, I think it was him, where... There can be a, a difference in how you can evaluate in advance the impact of spending time on data versus building and like engineering. So when you have engineering efforts, you have sort of a deterministic amount of stuff that you want to get out there. Like the outcome of the stuff that you want to spend some time on building will be fairly deterministic. You might have to slice it a little bit or, or change directions depending on your discoveries along the way. And then the amount that you have to put into it might be a little bit more uncertain um, and definitely have to multiply it with pi and all that. But with research like this, both the input and the outcome can have great uncertainty in advance. So you really have to make bets when you decide to work on something like that. Yeah, you do. And, and you know, another way you might think about this is like data teams have a lot asked of them. Like, how can you make sure that the, the org has what it needs without consuming all of the data team's bandwidth. And so this gets back into some of these virus build decisions of like, you know, are, are there places where you can reclaim time? Because there's a lot of really important stuff to invest in. Like this sort of strategic research, strategic analyses are really, you know, that, that's how you hit the, the moonshots is when you start to realize these underlying trends. The other things I'll, I'll highlight though, is that, you know, when we say entrepreneurial people, like there's a specific set of skills that I think can go under-indexed in early data team hiring. One is product thinking, just understanding what do the customers want. Two is communication skills. Like, you know, it's, it's not like AirMe was just naturally giving out a month or two to whoever wants to do research projects, right? There was an actual, like, they were convinced this guy could do it. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's, there's a certain amount of just kind of communication ability around what you're doing, what you're going to deliver, how it's going to go, kind of giving transparency into that process. And then the last thing is people who are kind of willing to get their hands dirty in the whole data lifecycle. Like, I, I think there really is something to having your early hires be full stack data scientists, where like, 
they need to both deliver impact with the final results of this research and analytics, but also mature all the upstream systems simultaneously. Yeah, I, I love these three pillars, product thinking, communication skills, and willing to get your hands dirty in the full data lifecycle. Yeah. And I think this is actually a really great segue into like, because we talked a little bit about, you know, data culture wise, we talked about org structures and, you know, how we are probably a fan here and you're, you're a fan of like that, that hybrid model, but it has to be, you know, empowered with a centralized Collaboration and sort of personal growth, you know, reporting structure. Um, someone who is a data scientist should empower you to grow as a data scientist, probably. But with talking about that data lifecycle, because you also talked about that being one of the, you know, one of the most frustrating parts um, or, or difficult parts to solve at Airbnb, for example, the instrumentation part, which is mm-hmm. super, super, super early. Like it's the it's the top of your modern data stack is like, get that right. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about like the involvement in analytics for feature releases, just planning it and QAing it and analyzing it and, and prioritizing feature work based on that data and how that evolved through your tenure at, at, at MBB and how you've sort of recommended maybe people do this today also? Yeah, I'm getting instrumentation right. It's, it's a pretty tough problem, obviously, as, as, as you know very, very well. I, I think the, like early on, there was not really much of a connection with instrumentation as linked to product success. Um, I think that's something where there's sort of a lived experience that has to go into it, where like either you have really senior product people who know they're going to want to need to answer these questions and, you know, will call out that, hey, do we have a tracking for this sort of thing? Otherwise, it's data teams that have to be early enough in the product process to get this stuff prioritized. I I think one of the things is that it's not necessarily the case that engineers are thinking in terms of instrumentation. Like, I wouldn't call it a core part of their tool belt. Like, there's a certain amount of observability in terms of, like, the health of their systems, but analytics use cases is not, like, they're, they're not so intimately connected with those. So... You know, the way I think about this is going back to what I was saying earlier, like every data person knows that there is some data that's a lot more valuable than other data. And early on, just understand there's an 80-20 rule to this stuff where it's very bad if you don't know how many Airbnb bookings there are or how many signups or whatever there is. It's not so bad if you don't know how many modal opens happens like and, uh, by the way I, I, you should know that that'd be great to have but like in, in a world where you're starting from scratch and nothing's been instr- instrumented and even the engineers don't fully know how to instrument it because your you know logging system is new or whatever like, just come up with some way to prioritize and get certain pieces of data really really high quality because they're, they're, there's such a flywheel to this thing where you know, okay, you've got this one data source, this telemetry lockdown, and now every data project can do it. With that, we're able to storytell so much better around what made this product succeed or not. And that kind of increases the desire for future products to know that level of 
you know, knowledge. Mm-hmm. And that, that kind of leads more instrumentation processes down the road. Yeah, this is a really great, uh, and I like, it's so tied with that discussion on the, like, who is the owner of the metric and, and how you can change that culture. And I think you're also, also actually touching on, like, you, you were, I mean, I think this is a great point. Uh, when you're starting out, you don't want to start with everything, right? Uh, you want to prioritize just like with any product strategy. And I think it's super tied also to experimentation, right? It's like, mm-hmm. I remember, we created this thing that I think most mature teams eventually create and then just call it something. We called it purpose meeting at QuizUp, where we sat down with everyone and talked about the purpose of a specific release, how we would measure its success, and then what data structures we would need for it. Because you were talking about you know, product analytics maybe isn't one of the fundamental pieces of an engineer's toolbox. And same goes for experimentation. Like they want to release something and it's an overhead to have two versions of your code running at the same time. So ideally you want to skip it. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I found worked really well, and I want to then throw that question over to you, like what do you think works well for that was when we had that sit down designing those metrics and I would just ask, you know, do you think if we measure this, will that tell us whether this release was a success? And then they would dig deeper and figure out metrics that were like, um, now maybe we need to measure this and this and this. And then I would ask like, okay, cool. But, you know, what if, you know, there is some seasonality that impacts this metric so we won't be able to tie it really to that release? Um, how would we feel about that? Like, would we, would we, if this just goes up 20% as soon as we release it, will we say it's a success or could we tie it to something else? And then the engineers would be the ones that were bought into like, well, actually, probably would make sense to release this as an A-B test or an experimentation. And sort of having it come from them being bought into it was the only times when we pushed out an A-B test. Like I just stopped pushing it out as like a a forcing thing and just like, do you think this will empower you as a team? And so it always came from them. So what are your thoughts on that? Like how how do you drive that? Yeah, And it's a very common story. I think one of the things that happens in, when you get experimentation right is that an engineer should be able to go end to end and just do the process themselves. Like I think there's so much of this of what we're getting at in terms of data culture is making a statement that people should be able to be part of data culture without having to know a bunch of data infra and stuff like that. Right? Like you should be able to get all the benefits, and engage in curiosity without having to know these systems. So when when I think of the experimentation space, I really think of like, what would be the most perfect situation for a company to be in? Like, it would be something where engineers can easily set these things up uh, in code. Product people can easily report it up and down, you know, align people on what matters on the story coming out of it. And data people could trust that the way they have architected metrics is how it's going to be used. And that like, by architecting metrics, that's both the single source of truthness of like, you know, this is revenue. This is the most important thing. Like, we don't care that your experiment boosted, you know, click conversions if it didn't like you move a metric we care about. And that uh, it's going to be the correct definition of revenue. You know, like, so it's, you know, revenue as we're using it in the CFO dashboard. So whatever. So that kind of the, both the hierarchy of importance and the quality of each individual metric is what data teams care about. And so I think experimentation is a blessing and a curse. It's very public. It's very cross-functional. Engineers, designers, data folks all collaborate on it. 
And, you know, the perfect system would give everyone what they want. And then you just say like, okay, if this perfect system is easy to implement, it has really clean, powerful reporting, you don't have to push it into like Google Slides or whatever to make it understandable. And it's using all the things data teams want, then how can we just make that like water? Just make it really easy. And so that like you just set it up and you go and you get all those things. And, you know, that, that's kind of how we think of reimagining the experimentation world. And it's kind of interesting because, like, if you look at the experimentation landscape today, and it's one that's moving quickly, I think there's kind of broad consensus that there's a lot of opportunity here. Like, you, I don't think you come across people who think of these other personas in that way. You know, there, there are some tools that, like, really think of the engineering persona and the feature flagging use case and, you know, all the different clients and the ability to use it. But they just, you know, pretend like the analytics side and the data side don't exist or it's just not native to PMs. And uh, I, I think to get experimentation right, you really need to match what all three parties really need. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Again, it, it, it's so related to that prioritization. So that's the other thing that I uh, wanted to bring up. Like we have, uh, I mean, we, we talked a bit before recording the episode about the statement that I don't trust this data, um, how common that is and why that is mm-hmm. and how to solve it. And I think you're touching on something there, the prioritization, like there are some metrics that really need to work. Um, and then there's some that can have leeway. Um, but I think you have an interesting take on, you know, how to solve the data trust. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, definitely. You know, data has a full life cycle and, you know, has these kind of incoming artifacts from telemetry and from transactional tables. And then you do this translation process and um, then you're serving it with all these different types of results. And that, that means you have this lineage tree going all the way back to the product that has to all be in concert. And like any other engineering system, this is changing quickly. It's going to break periodically. It'll fall behind for a period of time and then have a big retrofit and get fast, whatever. This is just the nature of things. What I think can make data culture tough is when downstream consumers who don't understand what Snowflake is or what core data tables are or what is a log event versus a transaction, like you don't understand any of these details, they are forced to make sense of, am I looking at a true result or not? Like when you finally serve up that bar chart or whatever, and they stare at it being like, okay, so am I going to like hire a bunch of people based on this decision or green light a project based on decision? And they have to say, like, do I trust the insight and do I trust the data? So I think it actually, you know, tools like ourselves at Epo and experimentation, because experimentation is actually an extreme case of obfuscating the early parts of the data lifecycle. We have to deliver people that knowledge. It's like, is the data good? Before you actually dig into insights, is the data up to date? And so we create these little data quality scorecards in Epo that basically say, like, here's the state of your data. Like, it should look clean. It should be up to date. It should uh, match what you see in your other data systems. You know, you roughly know you get, you know, a million purchases a day or whatever, like here you can look at the chart. looks like that sort of thing. And so basically downstream consumers need to be able to quickly cross it off their list that this is not a data quality issue. And thus I can proceed to insights. Now, if the data quality thing is an issue, they at least know it's like, okay, like I don't need to, you know, I can go, bug my data person about it. I can invest in those systems. I can do these other things. But what you run into trouble as a data consumption layer is if you don't let people quickly uh, do that fork in the road of like, is this data up to date, good, high quality, et cetera, versus not. 
Yeah, I think this is such a strong point. Um, and I recently listened to, re-listened to my interview with Maura Church at Patreon mm-hmm. because um, writing, writing a blog post from, like she had such good tactical and strategic advice that I want to summarize. And she had some thoughts on this. Um, yeah. And as an additional data point, I would love, you know, what tactics can you share to make sure this is properly documented or like that, downstream consumers know what they can trust and what they can't yeah i you know there's a few ways of going about it and this is something i actually think there aren't established best practices around but like one of the things that you might see is companies like airbnb will have like a data portal uh some sort of data catalog or some system like that that basically is a one-stop shop for you to just go and get these sort of quality scorecards and just say like okay i'm looking at revenue what is the state of the revenue data and so no matter what other system you're in, whether you're looking at like an experimentation result or a BI dashboard or whatever, you can always just kind of go to that spot and get the, the data quality check. But, you know, it's, it's tough because then the downstream consumer also has to know that this data catalog thing exists and that the URL is this and here's how you navigate. It'll suddenly have to absorb a whole new tool just to do these basic checks. And also it doesn't extend into things like, the, like a presentation exactly. where you don't you know, have the ability to kind of go to these other places. Or an ad hoc spreadsheet that someone put together. Exactly. And so, you know, the way I think of these systems, this is, again, sort of gets back into the buy versus build thing, but because, you know, we are a SaaS product that has front-end developers and like a full suite of capabilities, we can actually make a native experience of data quality checks. Um, And I actually think a lot of other consumption players you know, whether it's your BI tools or your marketing analysis, your churn modeling, whatever, it behooves them to have a similar thing. Because like, it's, it's just, there's almost like a ritual to it, right? Like if, if you're a PM, like you just want to check these things and prove to yourself that the data is good. Mm-hmm. Uh, instead of having to trust that someone cares about your work as much as you care about your work. Yeah. I loved a couple of things that Maura shared. One of them is like just religiously label things as here be dragons. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like if you're going in here, you are potentially venturing in an uncharted territory here. Uh, And then the other thing that they did is like, they literally have like a pizza and and beer or soda night where they just go through all sorts of like just Google drives or Dropbox paper folders and just like, you know, clean out stuff. This is an old presentation or this is an old chart, uh, old, old sheet. Yeah, totally get it. You know, this is another this is another example of what I would call like trying to fit your organization to your tools instead of your tools to your organization, right? Like it's we're gonna have like a you know pizza night, a council, like experiment council review, whatever. Like we're gonna just acknowledge that there's a finite set of people who can actually do this vetting and they need to become available in some broad open public. So yeah. like yeah, I get it. Yeah, like you gotta solve this in some way or another. And you know, people like we did our share of those things too. But you know, in a world where the tools are like getting much better very quickly, I think you shouldn't need like specialized councils to, to do this stuff as much. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I think like, um, and then it's a matter of the life cycle you're in as uh, a company or like a maturity stage as a company and as a data team. And I think there's like, there are tools or processes that you can apply while you're a little bit early and it doesn't make sense for you to invest in like um, building a lot of automation around all of that stuff. And then you take that as input into your like down the line strategy. Yeah, exactly. And, and the thing I will mention is that like, you still need, 
things like these office hours or whatever, just because like, suppose you have my perfect world and you can introspect data quality any moment. Like you still need to know who to bug <laughs> if something's wrong. Right. And so yeah. as companies grow, as they get more remote, like just even just having the names of the data team be more visible and more accessible is like, it's, it's a nice catch all process. But yeah. I, I think what, what I'm getting at is that like, it should be really thought of as this kind of general catch all thing. And it shouldn't be like a core, like you, sh- you should be able to do good work without having to attend office hour. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. So uh, I want to start wrapping up here. Um, this has already been such a fantastic conversation yeah. with uh, great takeaways, both strategic and tactical. So thank you so much for sharing. But sort of, you know, taking a step back a little bit on, you know, some data misconceptions and and what teams should do to get their data right. Um, so a couple of questions on that note, uh, and starting with this one, what are people's biggest misconceptions about how data and product analytics work? The misconceptions for non-data stakeholders, I think, is that it's honestly that's very easy to get good data. Uh-huh. <laughs> like there, if you know, I think if you are a PM, you probably do not know the full life cycle of what this data point went through, right? Like the you know first had to be instrumented here, and even instrumenting properly, like it's a small amount of low impact code, but you actually have to deeply understand the system to do it well. So you know there's that, and then all the downstream processes, and just the full magnitude of all the data pipelines that are happening. So I think for downstream users, I think they they are starting to kind of appreciate a little bit more of just the amount of data investment you have to make to get this outcome you want. Like it's not like a snap of your fingers and it's a good thing. For data teams themselves, I think the biggest misconception is that the point is better decisions. The point is impact, right? Like it's sort of obvious when you say it out loud, but like you don't start a data team to have a data warehouse. Like you don't start a data team to have, you know, uh, BI tools and to have like these data models and all this stuff. The whole point of this thing is that the org makes better decisions. And so if you are a data team, you need to care, like the end to end of a data life cycle doesn't end with a bar chart. It ends with good decisions being made as a result. And that sort of gets it a little bit what I meant with the Airbnb thing in terms of our culture is that we actually saw the world that way. Like it wasn't enough that you did this nicely packaged piece of data work. Like you got to drive the org in this like really important way. So I, I, I would encourage all data teams to think about like, you know, how are you improving decision quality at your organization? Yeah, I think that's a really great framing. And you mentioned it in passing, uh, but one of the things that we did want to cover is literally in this specific interview is how do you define data culture? And, and I think you've now done it. Yeah, exactly. Decision quality, I think is the, that's the term I find myself using over and over. And it's also obviously the worldview that kind of leads me to run an experimentation business because, you know, like it's very, very linked to decision quality. Yeah. And moving over to just like a starting off question. What's the first thing teams should do to get their analytics right? Because we've talked a lot about like experimentation. And- yeah, yeah. I think like a true CEO, I think my answer is hire the right data leader. Mm-hmm. Like, again, you need, you need someone, like, to be able to get the data flywheel going, you need to get some set of data work that does this end-to-end thing. Like, it has all the inputs you need, and then it leads to impact on the other side. 
that impact is something that has a, you know it when you see it quality where like the CEO, the PMs all know that data was really important here. Now, the thing is to do that, you're not going to start off with this fully built out infra. So you're going to have to kind of pick your battles. It's sort of like a strategic sequencing to get there. And that's where I think like bringing on the right person who can, but understands how to operate at every level of the stack, who can communicate and evangelize properly and just build a great team. You know, I, I think yeah. that, that's probably the most important step. This is, uh, and so what you mentioned there as like, okay, the first step as I, if I'm someone that I'm trying to build a data team and, and it's non-existent, then I want to hire the right data leader. And then in the second part of your answer, you sort of also gave recommendation to that first data person or first couple of data people is yeah. get that data flywheel going and pick your battles and, and build a sequence of things that ultimately are about decision quality. Yeah. Get the flywheel going. Yeah, I think, you know, one tactic I end up using all the time. So yeah, if you're a data leader, what I'd highly recommend is mapping out the user journey. And so all the milestones someone has to hit to get value from your product. So if you think of Airbnb, first you have to understand, you have to be aware that Airbnb exists as a concept. Then you have to understand what does Airbnb do? Like, you know, when should I be using Airbnb? Like the market positioning thing or whatever. Third, is you have to have that use case in mind. So I'm, I want to book a trip. I'm ready. I want to go to you know the Swiss Alps in the winter or whatever. Then you have to go and find uh, a listing or a situation that meets your needs. You have to book that listing and then go on the trip, whatever, right? And so if you just stage it out like this, first, it brings you into the language of, of the CEO, right? Because like the, every other business person in there can, you know, who is properly customer obsessed can understand here's all the stages. And then the natural thing that starts to happen is to say, okay, if we look at all these stages, what is our state of data in each one? You know, like, couldn't we say what is our the level of market awareness? Can we say how many people find list, you know, listings that match their needs and then how many end up booking? And so that'll naturally lead to conversations that are like, okay, let's upgrade all of our kind of input data for those things. And kind of along the way, as you eye those stages of the funnel, just if you can say like, if I was to improve the booking conversion thing, you know, I could try to build a search ranking model. I could try to understand these marketplace frictions, whatever. If I was trying to increase the satisfaction of the booking and the five-star review rate, you know, here's some other levers I could pull. And then you just got to prioritize them, right? You got to say like, what's most reasonable given the state of data, given the state of teams, given the, the people I'd work with, you know, like does the team running that have someone who understands how data works? Like there's kind of a constellation of factors that go into it, but I'll just start there. The user journey, what does that tell us about our state of data and where data investments can be made? Oh, this is incredible. I think this is really, um, it's something that you can apply pretty early. So I, I'm hoping this will be helpful for a lot of people. So we've covered a lot of area and you've sort of answered already maybe uh, my last question. So we can maybe make that a quick one and, and maybe just switch it over to what's next for you personally or on the Apple journey. Yeah, definitely. Is there anything you want to add to like, um, what's one thing you wish more people knew about data and product? I think you've already answered it. Yeah. 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 I think it's that one, but I'll say in terms of, for me, I, you know, obviously I'm going to be building Apple for the next kind of indefinite future. We're trying to reimagine the world of experimentation and think about this intersection of technology problems and cultural organizational problems. Like, you know, I always say we are really in the business of trying to sell entrepreneurial culture. 
Like we're really trying to sell this world where anyone in the building can have an idea and validate the idea against metrics really seamlessly. And so like we are just started kind of deploying all across the tech industry and hoping to kind of keep growing from there. Um, I think this overall goal of improving organization decision quality is really what we think about. It's like, how can we just enable better decisions across, you know, the whole company? And what would you say is like um, the right time for a data team or a product organization to start thinking about this? I really think it's once you have enough sample size to do things with experimentation with data. And there's a trade-off here because like, you know, even with small sample size, maybe you can detect a, you know, 30% increase in your metric or something. But, you know, if you can detect something like a 5-10%, I think you've already reached the threshold where experimentation is going to yield a lot of benefits to your, both in terms of business ROI and in terms of culture. So that's what I would generally say is, you know, you bring on a data person, that data person should have the basics of the modern data stack, Snowflake, DBT, whatever, and then just see if you have sample size to run an experiment. Exciting. Where do people go to try out Apple? Yeah, you can visit our website at www.getepo.com. Again, that's www.getepo.com. Yeah, our contact information is up on there. Uh, a lot more details about how we see the world. We also have a Substack, which is uh, epo.substack.com. We're putting a lot of our thoughts kind of similar to this uh, interview in there in terms of like what do data teams and product teams all need to realize to get benefit from their experimentation programs. Nice. And I know that you have historically written really good content. Um, is that also where they find all of that? Yes. Perfect. Apple.substat.com. There's already good content on there. I can verify. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much. Awesome. So thank you so much for taking the time to join this conversation, Jay. It was a pleasure having you on. And I look forward to part two when we can sort of dive into the future of Apple. Absolutely. No, this has been fun, Steph. Thank you. See ya. Thanks for listening to The Right Track. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. Keep the conversation going with us in The Right Track community. Join us on therighttrack.avo.app. You can learn more about Avo at avo.app. And please follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter via avohq.com.